0: Hey everybody and welcome into episode 28 of the landscape photography show on this show We have a great guest with us. If you've been on YouTube Anytime in the past few years and searched the term landscape photography More than often you're probably going to be watching a video by this guy. His name is Nick page absolutely dominating that scene not only because of his character and just the great communicator and educator of photography that he is, but also that he is an amazing photographer as well. So on this podcast, I was really interested to talk to Nick about a lot of topics in landscape photography. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Nick Page joins us on the podcast today, and and Nick and I have never talked via podcast, or in person, let alone just emailed back and forth and some social media stuff back and forth. But Nick, I just wanted to welcome you on the show. Thank you for joining us and maybe get started by going into how you actually got started in photography and then, and then a little bit venturing into how you got into landscape photography is kind of like your niche in photography in general.
1: Well, yeah, it's good to be on. It feels like it's been kind of a long time coming. We've been talking about doing this episode for a long time, like a year or something probably. <laughs> um yeah, so it's good to finally be on My photography journey is probably started a lot different than most people i I never even got my first camera until I was well into my thirties, and it just kind of happened by accident. I had hurt my back at work, actually. And I, I was waiting for a back surgery that felt like it was never going to come because I was actually like in a bedridden state where I couldn't get up and walk at all. And I, I was like that for a month and a half. And during that month and a half, I wanted to do something with my brain other than just watch, you know, television and, and sit, sit on the couch and be really depressed. So I decided to learn something and that something ended up being photography. I just hopped on YouTube and Started, you know, searching for, you know, all the different stuff that a person searches for. I learned about the exposure triangle and I watched all of that that different stuff. And I didn't even own a camera at that point. So that was kind of how I got into photography is I just desperately needed something to do with my brain that I could do while laying on the couch and and watching YouTube happened to be it. So that's that's about when I got into it. And that was... 20, the beginning of 2013.
0: What did you do for a job?
1: I was a golf course greenskeeper.
0: Okay. So so you're a golf guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was always into golf and then, you know, I thought I got the perfect job by working on a golf course, but the joke was kind of on me because I was on this tiny little podunk municipal course where you know it was cool i got to spend all day outside and everything but it really had like no future at all and i'd been doing that job for 10 years and and a lot of manual labor and i've got a bad back to prove it but the what's cool about what i appreciate about my blue collar background is it makes me fully appreciate just how lucky i am now to get to take pictures and talk about photography for a living
0: Are you one of those people like you love to play golf, but you can't watch it? Or do you like to watch it too?
1: I watch it too. Like I I can can totally stay awake during, (laughs) during the masters and whatnot. I know most people fall asleep during golf. I can, I can stay awake.
0: Yes. And it's coming up. Like I, okay. I'm, I live in Tennessee. So the thing to do in the South is like you watch the masters in April. That's just Mm -hmm. what you do.
1: Yeah, man. And the masters is my favorite tournament for sure. And yeah, I'm a I'm a huge golf nerd, and I still play a lot. I'm like a five handicap, which you would never think of a big, heavy set guy like me. But that's probably where part of where my bad back comes from. It's a combination of blue collar back, blue collar manual labor background, and golfing when you're overweight. Both those things are really bad for your back.
0: <laughs> Favorite golfer is who?
1: John Daly. And really? Yeah, okay. Throwing it old school. I mean, wow. The favorite pre, you know, previous generation. He was like the guy that influenced my swing. He ruined my
0: swing. Is so, it the pants?
1: Uh, definitely not the pants. It was the power, bra. Yeah. That guy was powerful. And yeah. I, I loved. I loved that he just didn't give a damn. You know, he was like the the rebel, and I loved that.
0: Cool. Modern day. Who who is it? Modern day.
1: Uh. I'm also a big Tiger fan, so I want to. Okay. I want to. Don't see be afraid Tiger. to say it. I know, but, but I want to see Tiger like you know break every record that he can. Just because it's really cool to feel like you're witnessing you know history, and so that's the fun part of watching Tiger play. Is you know he's he's one of the greatest ever. So you know it's cool to feel like you're witnessing something that you know people will remember for you know a century.
0: All right, I'm gonna start. Stop geeking out about golf. I mean, we could we could honestly do the whole podcast about golf if you wanted to.
1: <laughs> we probably shouldn't, though. We probably have already lost half the
0: audience. Yeah, seriously, the drop off rate at five minutes now is plummeting. Um, well, let's talk about like a video um, that I watched of yours and that really resonated. I think with a lot of people. On YouTube uh, and I think it was a couple months back about how you were kind of going through a creative rut in landscape photography which a lot of people do but you talked a lot about self-worth and how that's linked sometimes Mm -hmm. in your mind to social media and the amount of likes or or views on YouTube. Take us back and kind of go through what you were going through then and maybe even how you climbed out of that rut.
1: Well, I'd love to say that I've totally climbed out of that rut, but I'm still a little bit in it. I mean, mm-hmm. so the so the challenging part of doing what I do, which is, you know, I'm, I'm teaching photography at workshops. I'm talking about photography in podcasts. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a YouTube channel where I'm either doing it or talking about it and as a result, I, I end up just living in social media. I'm constantly posting things to Instagram and to Facebook, and then I post a video on YouTube, and then I'm trying to keep up with comments. And as a result, like all day, every day, I'm just, you know, trying to keep up with the social media stuff. And the, it social media can be so bad for a person's mental health because you end up caring far too much about what other people think of you. And, you know, that's also one of the issues with YouTube in general is that, you know, if you're a movie star, you're pretending to be somebody else. But if you're on YouTube, you're only pretending to be you. And when people have criticisms of you on YouTube, it's really hard not to take that personal because they're criticizing you and your personality and the way you talk and the way you look and like, and for somebody like me that already is probably does not have a thick enough skin. It's, it can be a major problem after a while. And granted I've been doing YouTube for probably four years now, five years. And, you know, over that amount of time, it's, i won't say that i'm burnt out on it but i i have definitely um i've reached my limit of criticism <laughs> like a person can only take so much and so all of that combined can really weigh you down and you start your focus becomes on well what do these people want from me and and it's such an unhealthy mindset to have you know the the person that you know isn't the, the person that is is creating work that resonates with themselves. They're not focused on what other people want from them. They're just focused on creating the work that they want to create. And that is where a person should try to be. Unfortunately, a lot of times when you're playing the YouTube popularity game, like a lot of people do, people are focusing far too much on what other people might want from them. And that's kind of where my slump has come from. And to get out of that, I've, you know, I'm trying really hard to just like, you know, put the blinders on. And as much as I hate to say it, I need to stop reading the comments that come in on my channel. And even though that's my way of communicating back with my audience, uh, too much of that is a bad thing. So I'm trying to put the blinders on and just do what I want to do. And that. Another interesting problem is that even though I'm a full-time landscape photography guy, the the amount of landscape photography I get to do these days is depressingly small mm. just because, you know, I, I've, I do so many workshops during the course of a year and I have a family at home because I do all those workshops and I've gone so much just for those workshops. It means that I don't get to go out and you know shoot on my own as much as I would like it used to be that I got to shoot on my own a whole lot but as you know as I've became more I don't know in demand for workshops I've filled my calendar a lot with those but as a result I don't get to shoot for myself anymore and for that reason that that leads to me not growing as a photographer and growing as an artist anymore and that was the, you know, the area that I, I derived the most, um, I don't know, satisfaction. I love the growing process. I love seeing those little micro steps of getting a little bit better at this and a little bit better at that. And to, when you start to plateau, people like me start to get kind of bummed out because for me, the journey is the That is the fun part, not the destination. Now I'm at the destination and I miss the journey, (laughs) you know, and that's (laughs) that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, So I'm just trying to plan ahead and try to carve out more time for personal shooting as well. So yeah, that's that's where I am.
0: Does that put a strain on your creativity? Oh,
1: for sure, because creativity it comes from it comes from a happy place, right? Like, well, I mean, you know, you could argue that like in music, a lot of good music does come from being depressed and you could, you could say that maybe that's true for photography, but you're more likely to be creative and to have fun and to be uh, playful and to experiment and try new things when you're in a good, healthy, happy mindset. And you know, when you feel pressured, like, You know, for example, if uh, this next coming weekend um, I have available to go out and shoot. If I go into that weekend feeling pressured, like, okay, I need to create a YouTube video or, you know, do this, do that. This is my one chance. I got to make it count. You know, when you start putting all that pressure on yourself, the likelihood of you coming through is so low because you put yourself at a disadvantage by putting all that pressure on yourself. And and that's not the way to do it you know, the way to do it is just to go out, you know, I'm going to be outside and if something happens, that's cool. And if not, I'm going to be outside and enjoy it. That's the mindset you should really be in as a landscape
0: photographer. Is it brave to be a creator?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, in the beginning, I don't think that, um, I don't think that a person thinks about that as much because, you know, it, it, When I'm thinking and I'm thinking about YouTube here, um, in the beginning, you create a video and, you know, maybe 100 people see it and it feels like a big deal. But, you know, that, you know, you could make a bad video and only 100 people are going to see it. But as as you start to get that larger following, a larger percentage of those people watching don't like you. (laughs) And that's, I mean, that's just math. Like, you know, there's always going to be some, there's always going to be that one out of a thousand people that just really don't like you. And they, they want to let you know about it. Or maybe, maybe it's as simple as they just give you a little thumbs down. And then if you multiply that by a hundred, you know, you got a hundred thousand people watch a video, that's a hundred people giving you thumbs down. And then you start to like question yourself and The the hard, like I said, the hard part about YouTube is that you have to put yourself out there. You're not putting some um, persona out there, like like you're an actor in a movie. You're putting your real self out there, ideally, and it's really hard when people criticize the real self because then you start to have little self crises. At least I do, and. So yeah, it takes a lot of bravery to put yourself out there. And a lot of these people leaving super mean comments, you know, the trolls that you'll see on YouTube, they're not brave enough to put themselves out there. And for good reason, because they put so much bad juju out there, they're not going to start their own, um, channels and stuff. It's so, yeah, you definitely, it is definitely a brave thing to put yourself out there. I think
0: now, what was the feedback that you got off of that video?
1: Um, I think it resonated with a lot of people, um, you know, in that video, I talk a lot about just the fact that it's um, it can be bad on a person's mental health to be worried about, you know, what the world thinks of you. And it's it's counterproductive to being to being a creative photographer. Um, and I think that resonated with a lot of people. It's um, for the most part, it was very positive, but there's always those that are like, oh, poor you, you know, look at your amazing life. Of course, it, you know, people look at the type of life that I get to do. And um, for good reason, they they point out the fact of how lucky I am. And they are absolutely right. I am very lucky to get to do what I do. But the thing is, you know, there's. There there are times when I miss just going to work, shutting off my brain and not having to deal with, you know, so, when, sometimes when a person is in customer service, they might have to deal with one or 200 people that day. A lot of times I have to deal with way more than that, you know, just because of the the views on my videos and stuff. And, and anytime you're seeing that many, or you're interacting with that many people there's going to be a large well there's going to be a percentage of them that are just mean and and by putting yourself out there like that you end up dealing with a lot of mean people <laughs> and <laughs> and that's the part that I don't I don't love. I don't it's amazing to me how some people can just go so far out of their way to just be jerks and that that was a part of reality that I didn't I didn't realize until I you know got into the YouTube thing a little deeper.
0: Yeah. I've never understood the thumbs down on YouTube.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's, it's so weird because as a person that creates videos, I can get, you know, 400 thumbs up. And then as soon as that one thumbs down comes in, I'm like, what would I do? What's wrong? What what What's wrong with my video? Did I not try hard <laughs> enough? And for some reason that one thumbs down means It has so much more emotional impact than those 400 thumbs up. (laughs) And I swear that there are some people that subscribe to my channel just to give me a thumbs down. You know, they don't watch the video. They just want to give me a thumbs down. And did you know, did you know that people can actually purchase a bot or like subscribe to a bot where you can enter like five people for whatever amount of money? And that bot will go and give those videos a thumb down on every video that those creators, you can buy thumbs down That's the craziest thing in the world, but this is the world that we live in. Apparently
0: it's nuts. Monetize everything, man.
1: I guess you can even monetize negative feedback on YouTube.
0: (laughs) I just feel bad for people who like actually spent money on that.
1: It's insane. It's weird, but yeah.
0: I mean, you have so many videos on YouTube and you recently, I mean, you have 101,000 subscribers on YouTube. What what goes through your mind when you hear that number? It's weird,
1: but, you know, at the same time, it, because I'm, you know, I've been around for five years or so, there's a, there's a number of those subscribers that are not like real active you know, viewers anymore. Like, it's, you'll see it a lot of times with some of the older YouTubers or the people YouTubers that have been there for a while. A lot of times, those subscriber numbers will be pretty inflated, and it doesn't. It's not necessarily represent. Oh, there's a word I'm not going to be able to say. <laughs> represent. <laughs> it doesn't actually represent the 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 amount of interaction they get on videos. So. You know when I see that I have a hundred thousand subscribers it's it's incredibly humbling for sure, but i but you know the ha- the glass half empty part of me is like, oh yeah, but only about fifty thousand of them watch my videos <laughs> you know it's never good enough but um it's it's crazy that more you know a large town worth of people follow me on on YouTube, and it's crazy to me that people want to watch me rant and and stumble around in the wilderness on videos that much. It's kind of crazy.
0: Yeah. We should also mention that you have the landscape photography, Lance there. I mean, I can't even say photography. You can't say represent. (laughs) I can't say photography. I'm a professional. I, I promise. You also host the podcast, the landscape photography podcast, When you got started in this, did you automatically have a knack for voice and video when teaching landscape photography or or was that a developed trait?
1: That was definitely a developed trait. When I first got started with all of this, I never had I never had um, the goal of teaching it, really, Um, because, you know, I just loved photography, but you know, in my previous pursuits, like in the past, I've been a professional musician and then I was also a decent golfer and I was always the type of person that gave lessons. Like, you know, I gave lots of drum lessons. I did that for a long time. I have given golf lessons. And so it was kind of a natural thing for me to teach it. But when I started Photography, I never, and you know, none of that was even in the back of my mind. I just wanted to be a good photographer. And then, as as my photography got better, people wanted to know what I knew. And then, and then the video part of it started coming through. You know, I started creating YouTube videos, and my early YouTube videos were absolutely terrible. I I could not talk to a camera, but it's the kind of thing that you know, if you're a, a critical person like I am, I'm critical of myself eventually you can iron out all the things or most of the things that annoy you about yourself when you have to edit it back you know and because when you're sitting in the editing booth your punishment for creating that video is having to watch and re-watch yourself and the whole time you're just like oh just shut up you know it all <laughs> at least i am and so that in the end made me better i started you know, editing out all the things that I hate and and then I would next time I'd record a video, I would try not to do those things. And with audio with the podcasts, I have a background in audio engineering and that was kind of my my you know my interest that I love the audio side of things. So I you know, recording a podcast was always it was something I was interested in because I listened to tons of podcasts and audiobooks because, as a golf course greenskeeper, I spend all day i used to spend all day on a mower listening to audiobooks and podcasts, so it was pretty natural for me to want to do that but it but it wasn't until you know people actually were asking for it before I ever did it and And those early podcasts were terrible too, (laughs) but luckily I got to practice on somebody else's podcast for a while first before starting my own and ruining it. (laughs) So I, I started with, um, the improved photography podcast and then tripod and then portrait session, which is a portrait, you know, portrait photography oriented podcast, because I wasn't always a landscape photographer.
0: So you dabbled in portraits too.
1: Yeah. So when I first started photography, I did everything because I didn't know what type of photography I wanted to do. So it started off by, you know, I got my first camera. started taking pictures of my kid and then the neighbors wanted me to take pictures of their kids. And so within like, you know, a couple of weeks of getting my first camera, I got my first paying job. And then with that, within like three months of getting my first camera, I shot a wedding, which I was definitely not qualified for, but it was just kind of trial by fire. And i and before i knew it a year after getting my first camera i had to quit that golf course job to because i could make more on a weekend doing portraits and real estate and weddings than i could during my day job uh, mowing grass and so you know also uh, photography is a very time con- consuming thing and at that time i was actually a single father as well so i'm working a full time job being a single dad and trying to, you know, do photography gigs on the weekends and stuff, I it ended up, I just didn't have enough time to do everything. And so I could either give up photography or give up being a dad, which I wasn't going to do, or give up my day job. And I ended up giving up my day job and it ended up being the best thing I ever did. The first couple of years of photography, I I mean, I was shooting everything. I was shooting, you know, product photography, weddings, real estate. Um, I was selling landscape photography prints, but they were terrible and did a lot of portraits. And eventually, you know, I went down that road for probably four years before I started phasing most of the things that I didn't like out. I started photographing sports for the local newspaper and I actually still really enjoy shooting sports. But uh, there was one year that I shot 28 weddings in a year. And, you know, I I got pretty decent at all of those different genres. But the the genre that I loved the most was landscape photography because it turns out I really don't like people very much. <laughs> and so <laughs> And so maybe weddings aren't for a person like myself that doesn't want to be around people.
0: It's a and, great pitch for your workshops.
1: too. <laughs> right. By the way, I hate people. Come learn <laughs> from me. Um, yeah. So I phased out most of the stuff that I didn't like. You know, the first thing to go was like, you know, photographing maternity and babies because I was doing everything. I was I was. Yeah, I was a photography whore. <laughs> and I, I, but I had to pay my bills. And so in such a small little uh, market, like I'm in, because at the time I was living in a town of 2,500 people and, you know, there was a larger town that I now live in with like 35,000 people. It's not a big market. And so I had to shoot a whole bunch of different things. And eventually I phased out all the weddings and all the portraits um, you know, I'd still do a little product photography because there's minimal p- person in interaction in those. And, uh, but what I'm getting at is all, shooting all of those different things has made me a better photographer now because, you know, there's, there's so many little crossovers and little lessons to be learned from all these different genres. For example, shooting sports gives me such a better, um, appreciation for the importance of the moment. You know, I'm lucky enough to get to shoot a little bit of NFL and the it's in sports photography and wildlife photography, it's all about the moment, the decisive moment. You know, you can take just a boring shot of the quarterback holding a ball or you can take a photo of the exact moment when the ball is leaving the fingertips of the quarterback as he throws that touchdown. You know, that the moment matters a lot and Taking that kind of concept over into landscape photography has made me a much better landscape photographer because, you know, there are those moments in landscape photography. Sometimes it's the moment, you know, that last moment when the sun is just about to crest over the, the mountain in the background, or maybe it's, you know, waves crashing. That's one of the reasons I love to photograph crashing waves and big surf is because you get you get those moments that are never going to happen again, those shapes and the waves. Um, I love anything that, anything in landscape photography where you can get that decisive moment. And I think that comes from me shooting so many different genres early on in my photo career. <music>
0: I just want to pause real quick and talk about today's sponsor for the podcast, and that is visualwilderness.com. Visual Wilderness is a place where you can go sign up for a really cheap monthly subscription and get hours and hours and hours of content that's going to help you become a better landscape photographer. I'm a contributor to that site, and one of the things that I do is create courses for post-processing that are going to teach you the most essential topics as well as the most advanced topics that are going to take your photographs to the next level right now for a limited time. My courses are on sale for 33% off. If you apply the code David33 during checkout, if you want to see how to get those codes, go to today's show notes at com slash podcast slash Nick Page. Back to the podcast. You've mentioned a couple times and and alluded to being very self-critical, um, and kind of weeding out what you didn't like in your videos. How does being self-critical help you when you are constructing an image in the field?
1: Well, it helps a lot because, you know, in and we're all aware of this and we've all gone through this where you're, you walk into this, let's say this beautiful enchanted valley and the the birds are chirping and there's rainbows popping out and you know, us as outdoor enthusiasts slash photographers, we just love everything. And you really see that early on in people's photographic careers where they, they love everything. And so they just photograph it all. (laughs) You know, they, they take a wide angle lens, they shoot from really high and they just include the entire scene. And then you get back on the computer where we were no longer emotionally attached to that photo. And you're like, what am I even looking at? Like, what is this photo about? Like, granted, Mm. there's a lot of different, you know, elements in this photo, but it's not, it's not boiled down enough. And it's easy to be critical once you're reviewing the image back. But when you're in the act of the moment, when you're in the moment and you're outstanding in that beautiful enchanted Valley, it's, it's hard to narrow it down to only the things you like. And so being critical at the moment when it's difficult, that's that's the mark of a truly good photographer. It's some—it's a its a skill that you develop after a while. Like pretty soon you end up so critical that it's hard to even take the camera out of the bag anymore because, uh, you know, the sky isn't epic. So I'm going right. to just leave the camera in the bag yeah. or, you know, conditions are not perfect. So the camera doesn't even come out. Um, but the, when you're out in the field, it's all about boiling it down to the things that you love and eliminating all those things that you don't love. And we're, our brains are designed in a way to where it's really easy to notice the things that we like. And our eye just kind of skips over the things that we, that we don't like, you know, we, we have that brain filter and that's why it's so important to like, you know, set up on a tripod where you have a moment to like review the back of your LCD screen, get, get over that emotional attachment moment where you just love everything and then start to do edge patrol and start to boil down and be very critical about every little element that's in that frame. Because that is the way it's going to be. Once you get back to the computer, that's when you're going to be uh, the most, you know, critical. So it's important to try to be critical in the field even when you're having you know that you know whatever that spiritual moment that you're having where the birds are chirping the rainbows are popping out you have you have to bring a little bit of critical eye into that moment otherwise you're not going to be happy with the photos you take home
0: that's got to be difficult to do sometimes
1: for sure but uh, well it's it's difficult in in the beginning and i feel like it's much it gets easier and easier and easier as you you know as you get further into your photographic career and you start to get jaded <laughs> you get you get jaded and um i don't know you just get super critical like you know <laughs> we i shoot a lot with adam gibbs and mm-hmm. we we call him um, uncle grumpy it's because he's been doing photography for you know a decade <laughs> or or a century <laughs> he's been doing photography a long time and <laughs> he's developed that incredibly critical eye. So <clears throat> a lot of times he he doesn't even pull the camera out anymore because he, you know, he sees that, you know, it's, it's okay. It's pretty, but it's not going to make a good photo. And that, you know, that is a really, really important skill. And that it's just something that you develop After a while, you know, the longer you've been doing it, the, the, the more critical your eye gets, I think.
0: That's got, I mean, I always refer back to film days when I think about amount of photos people take and Mm -hmm. developing an eye that way. Did, do you think Adam really successfully developed that eye because he has been shooting for so long? And I mean, probably shot a ton of film back in the day
1: yeah i i think it definitely comes from that and it also comes from you know i experience it a lot when i go to places that i've already been before you know i've for example when i go to the oregon coast or i go into a forest scene i don't i'm not going with the intention of just recreating a photo i've already taken and sometimes that's where that critical eye comes from is because i stand in a scene and i'm like You know, I could take that photo over here, but it would be so similar to one that I've already taken and it probably wouldn't be as good anyway. So there's no need to do that. You know, I'm always looking to do something new rather than just, you know, recreate, you know, replay the old hits. And I think sometimes that's why that critical eye gets easier as, as you've been doing photography longer is because, you know, there's, you've already done a lot of those type of shots and, there's no point in just doing it again. You want to do something new. Otherwise it's not a fulfilling pursuit anymore. You know, a lot coming from a musician background, there's, if you have, if you're Leonard Skinner and you stand on stage, they're going to say, (laughs) play free bird, you know, and there comes a point where if you sit down to write a song, you know, it's not going to be free bird. You know, it's not, not fun to just sit there and do the same thing over and over and over because you're no longer being creative. You're just being a cassette tape. You're just, you know, just replaying the same song over and over. Creating new things is, is for me, the enjoyment of it. And that's where some of the critical eye comes from is because if I stand on a scene, stand at a scene, it's beautiful. And I have the option of just taking the same photo I've already taken 15 times before or, you know, taking a new one. I'm always going for the new one. And if there is no new one, then sometimes I don't even take it at all.
0: What about locations? Do you get more joy revisiting those locations and finding those little nooks and crannies that really speak to you as a creative photographer and somebody who likes to design something new? Or do you get more joy out of going and experiencing a completely new place and having fresh eyes on it?
1: For me, it's got to be a combination of the two. Like Mm. I I like to revisit a place for sure, but within reason, (laughs) you know, there's, you know, I have a lot of places in my local area that, you know, I know I can go to and I can make a good photo, but I've been there so many times I can't make a new photo and you know, I don't care whether I'm shooting with a macro lens or a telephoto lens or a wide-angle lens. I just can't do anything new there. And at that point, it's no longer a, a fun pursuit for me. I love photographing new locations, but a lot of times, the first time the first time at a new location is never going to be the most fruitful, just because I don't know it well enough. I like to go to that new place. And you know, get all those excited, happy, feel-good feelings that you get at a new place, but then visit it a few more times because usually it's like the second or the fourth time that you've been at a location where you start to really get the good stuff because you start to really understand the location. Um, I know there's some people, like I'm thinking of Simon Baxter, who loves to just go to the same, same areas over and over and over and over, and that's just kind of what he does but there there's a point where it gets really difficult to create new work at an old location, because if you've been there enough times, you've been, you've seen it in every single different kind of condition and you have photographed it in every kind of conceivable way. And then it stops being fun for me. And so for me, photography should be fun. Otherwise, why am I doing it at all? If I didn't want to have fun, I would have kept my day job. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it's got to be a blend between the two. The first time you go to a location is never the most fruitful, but at the same time, you know, y- you, you can kind of burn out a location as well. I
0: think. Can you retire a location? Oh, I can. <laughs> I've you retired
1: think? several. Well, yeah. I mean, like, it
0: can depends you Brad reti- farvet it and retire it and then bring it out? Yeah, that's,
1: That's probably exactly what it is. Like you you retire it for a while and then and then it starts sounding like a good idea. Like I I live in the Palouse region. So Mm -hmm. my local iconic place is Palouse Falls. And there's just nothing I can do there at a place like that. That's kind of a wide angle scene or maybe it's a telephoto abstract scene of water. There's nothing I can do, at least of that major waterfall that uh, there's nothing I can do there new be I've shot it in amazing conditions maybe if I get a lightning storm or something I could go there and that that's another thing for me is that I'm more of a I'm more of a weather and conditions photographer you know Mm -hmm. some people some people say like you know conditions don't matter or they're more about you know I I think about Adam and he says he's about quiet light well I'm about loud light I like (laughs) I love you know that those unique weather conditions that you can sometimes get. I love photographing storms and big surf and you know those those weather conditions that are not typical because to me that's what's interesting and I forgot where I was going with that <laughs> but i um yeah so i i'm a I'm more of a weather photographer and a conditions photographer, and if I've already gotten. Uh, amazing conditions in that that particular area. There, it's really hard to out outdo that. You, I mean, how many sunsets do you need over a particular location? Now, if it's a location that is more about the little vignettes and the little abstract scenes, mm-hmm. then I can foresee, like you know, doing forest photography. A f- a forest area is home to far more photos or for far more uh, compositions than like a big wide angle landscape type scene, like Palouse falls. Mm -hmm. So in a forest type scene, I can totally see, you know, the the, uh, area not getting fully retired because there's always something new you could do there, but it's a little bit more difficult with a wide angle type grand landscape scene.
0: Well, let's jump into the questions that, I put out on Instagram to people who wanted to ask you some stuff. So, I mean, these could really go anywhere. So be prepared. <laughs> okay. All right. Nick, which photographers do you draw inspiration from?
1: Uh, so I've always loved Ryan Dyer, um, hmm. Michael Shane, Bloom, Enrico Fassati. Uh, Enrico, if you're not familiar, for those that might not be familiar with his work, he does these just amazing, moody, um, dark forest scenes. And I just love his forest photography. Uh, David Thompson's another one. I, I like to draw little pieces of inspiration, not just from their photography, but little bits and pieces of their photography. For example, David Thompson's, um, he, d- he does such wonderful, tasteful post-processing that I really love his post-processing style. Um, yeah, th- those are some of the main ones, I guess. Those are the first ones that pop up into my head.
0: I think that's interesting. Like not only pulling in field work from people or style that you like, but also things you can see what they've done in post-processing and pulling that into.
1: Yeah. Right. Like, you know, person a might have, you know, really amazing compositional ideas and just abilities like their compositions are just always amazing, but maybe you don't care for the way they post-process or vice versa. Maybe this person has really great post-processing technique, but they've photographed scenes that don't really speak to you. And that, it, Again, throwing it back to music, you know, a lot of times a band's sound or they a lot of times even bands will list of a list of other bands that are their, you know, influences, musical influences. Like um, we're a little bit Jethro Toll and a little bit Taylor Swift, you know, whatever,
0: it's you An know, interesting mix.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's very original. Um And so I think the same is true for photographers. A a lot of times you hear people talk about like, you know, trying to develop your style and all your style really is, is like, you know, I like a little bit of this with a little bit of that. And then you throw it all into a pot and it comes out looking the way it does. Everybody draws inspiration and influence from other people. And it's okay to emulate bits and pieces of them because all you're really doing is finding things that speak to you. And then trying to have some of that show up in your
0: work. You just pulled out that like collaboration of music <laughs> just out of nowhere. Can you relate a collaboration back to your style of photography?
1: Oh, um,
0: you got this.
1: Well, I like a little bit of Rachel Talabart's wave photography Okay, with a little bit of, uh, um, with a little bit of maybe Alex Noriega's clean editing style. Like okay. Alex Noriega is an awesome post-processor. He's one of my favorite post-processors. And his stuff always seems real, but it also feels clean. And I love that. And I like just a, t- just a dash of Ryan Dyer, uh, Dyer's um, epicness with mm. a little bit of Enrico Vasati's mood. Nice.
0: That's a power collaboration.
1: Exactly. It's a, it's a great recipe.
0: <laughs> what do you believe is the most important composition rule for landscape photography? And I'm going to rephrase that cause I don't like the word rule. Um, let's say guideline or, or, or idea idea. Yeah. Let's go with that. <clears throat>
1: um, basically just to, just to include less of the mess. That, that was a term that I came up with on accident during one of my videos, less of the mess. I like so that. what? that's one of the reasons I love forest photography and woodland scenes and forest scenes is it's such a challenge. You know, every time you go out, there is zero guarantee you're getting anything. And as you, you know, get further along in your photographic career, you like a challenge after a while, you know, and that's why I love doing forest scenes is because it's all about trying to include what you like and tell the story of why you took that photo, that particular composition in the first place, but do it in a way where you're including less of the distracting elements around the outside of the shot. And it is, is always a challenge, but I think it's a very important lesson to learn where you have to include less of the mess, less of the distractions, and only tell the story of what it is that you like about that scene. And I've gotten really good in my four scenes at, you know, isolating just the reason I took the photo. Sometimes it's just the light streaming through. Um, But what I'm trying to do now is trying to have a really simple, successful scene, but make it a little bit more complex with a little bit more depth and include a little bit more and, it's, it's a never ending a never ending balance between trying to tell a simple, clean, you know, compositional story and then, but still have it be complex with com you know, multiple elements in it because, you know, if you're in a forest scene and you have lights splashing on a tree trunk, it's easy to just zoom in on the tree trunk, fill the frame with that and call it good. But what I, what the challenge that I put on myself is, Is to have that tree trunk still be the point of the photograph, but to give it more of a sense of place and to have a more complex composition, but still have it be clean. That's, that's a challenge that I'm currently giving myself a lot lately.
0: Okay. I got a lot of weird responses to my Instagram (laughs) posts. Probably my favorite though, was, was this one, Nick dot, dot, dot. Do you miss me? Love (laughs) Canon.
1: I'm sorry, Canon, but I don't. (laughs) I mean, there's a chance. There's a chance with this R5. I mean, you're, you're making some strides, you know, you're showing that you still care a little bit. That R5 is looking kind of interesting. We'll see if, see how you've crippled the video. You know, you have a tendency to cripple your video. And for somebody like myself that does a lot of video, I can't be shooting with a 1.6 times crop and all of that stuff. So Canon, you still have a chance we'll see we'll see what happens
0: if you could only shoot one focal length for the rest of your life what would it be
1: Uh, i don't like this question i know um i think just for the challenging aspect of it it would not be wide it would be telephoto so let's say i'll say 200 millimeters If I could only shoot one, one focal length for the rest of my life, it would have to be 200 millimeters because at least at that point I'll be coming away with more original photos Uh. because, you know, that's one of the hardest things about wide angle photography is that, you know, it's very difficult to come away with a scene that people don't just automatically recognize as this, this place. And with a telephoto lens, it's oftentimes a lot easier to come away with an original composition just because the likelihood of somebody zooming in on that particular mountain peak, you know, at that exact focal length is very, very low. So I would choose a longer focal length just because I feel like it would be more original.
0: All right. My last question is this. I had, um, Gavin on last week. He wanted me to ask you not not to give too much away about this but he wanted me to ask you kind of what it was like making his last video and he said there was a scene with you and ryan smith and ryan was playing like a character what was that (laughs) like that behind the scenes vibe
1: the behind the scenes vibe yeah Uh, there's (laughs) there's Um, can you
0: take him seriously
1: uh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny thing about gavin the funny thing about gavin is that he behind the scenes is like the most temperamental diva ever mm. <laughs> he, he is so difficult to make happy <laughs> <laughs> um it was a challenging three weeks that we all spent together and the, the funny thing, so for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, um F4, which is myself, Thomas Heaton, Adam Gibbs, and Gavin Hardcastle, we all got together for three weeks traveling down the West Coast and creating a big video project. It was incredibly ambitious, but it involved living in close quarters for three weeks straight. And... <laughs> And I don't know if the friendships survived or not. And the funny thing is, you know, we all knew that someone was going to crack. You know, someone's going to crack first because that's just too long of a period. I would have cracked with anybody, um, let alone have five guys all doing it. Greg Snell also helped us. He was our video camera guy. And the thing that I did not foresee is that it was me that cracked first. I was I totally just like. I was just done. I was so burnt out. I was getting snappy and snooty with people. It was, it was not my finest moment. I was just so burnt out and tired of doing it. I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, yeah, it, Gavin. The, so I would say that the, the vibe behind camera, the the vibe in that room, that, that shoot was, it was, um, it was interesting. That's, that's <laughs> what I'll have to say. there's, Some things being unsaid. I don't know if he, yeah,
0: he didn't, he didn't give away too much to me. (laughs) I'll put it that
1: way. Okay. Well, I'm glad (laughs) (laughs) that was an interesting day.
0: Three weeks in a camper for somebody who proclaims not to like people is rough.
1: Yes. And I mean, we're, we, we were four introverts and Greg, Greg's Mm. not an introvert. He's, Mm. he's very outgoing. And so it was, it was almost like a social experiment. Let's, let's take these four introverts, throw them in a tiny, tiny camp trailer and make them travel together for three weeks. And let's just see what happens. It was interesting. It was pretty rough by the end of it.
0: Well, he's Nick Page, photographer. Keep doing what you're doing, man. It's going great.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on.